everyone, wherever you're listening from. You're listening to Marking the Roll. My name is Phil Dye, I'm your host, and this is a podcast for teachers, for parents, for educators, whether you're in the school system, the university system. Increasingly, it's also being listened to by students. Um, We're based in the Illawarra area of New South Wales, which is in Australia on the East Coast, but we have listeners from all over Australia and all over the world. This is episode 25, which asks the question, is it really worth going to university these days, especially uh, in this time of low unemployment when there's plenty of work around, uh, when university fees are quite high, um, and when universities are coming in for quite a bit of flack? Now, this episode is useful for teachers of kids who may be going on to university, useful for parents, where the kids might be thinking of tertiary study, uh, for the students, most certainly, uh, for employers who want to know what the students are learning, and it's certainly important for uh, tertiary administrators. I interview quite a few people for this episode, and I don't want to make out that one person's experience represents everyone. I think the ABC in Australia have um, developed this trend of putting up one person's experience as representing everyone, and that's not how it is. So um, yes, just because one person has a bad experience doesn't mean everyone has that. Although there's some terrific insights um, here in this episode from the individuals that I interviewed. I have just recently resigned from Macquarie University. Um, And look, a lot of people love Macquarie and it had a tradition of very fine education. But the main worry was that it was, well, to me, it was being taken over by identity politics. There was absolute obsession with diversity, with race, with gender, and not just an obsession with who people are, but who people think they are, their own subjective ideas. So it's it's coming towards an end of objective truth and education into a subjective field. And indeed, Oxford University um, Mathematics, Physical and Life Sciences have recently put out a a statement that says, and, and this is very relevant to Australian universities, as we work towards greater inclusion, it declares, We need to have a broader understanding of what constitutes scientific knowledge, including challenging Western-centric ideas of objectivity, expertise and merit. In other words, scientific study to find the truth is being questioned and subjective ideas and feelings are being respected. Now, as someone who has worked in science for a long time, this is very hard to take. And I can see that Australian universities are going that way. Um, There's this immense focus on queer culture, on transgenderism, and how can you teach science that says there are only two sexes, male and female, but also honour the people who say that they're on this uh, spectrum between the two. A man who dresses as a woman is still a man, no matter how he feels. Um, So 
Um, I found that very de- very difficult to deal with, especially when you came to a beautiful room called the Queer Safe Room, which I don't think I ever saw anyone in. Um, and I said to several people at the university that this actually sends the message that everywhere else at the university is unsafe for someone who is different. And that is certainly not the case. So it wouldn't be fair to say that some universities have been taken over by an ideology that really is not quite in line with um, scientific research and the teaching of facts. Now, we're going to start uh, today's um, episode asking whether universities are just worth it these days uh, with the words of someone from the Daily Insight. Now, this person works at a university. Um, No one knows who he is. Uh, His voice changes, but he tells tales about the university that he's working in. Of course, no one can pin him down and he's not willing to say which university it is. So here's the first of two comments from, let's call him Bob, from the Daily Insight. As part of my job as a university employee, I had to sit in on classes and take notes. This was back in early 2019, before the pandemic. I used to sit in on an international relations class. On the first day of class, the lecturer introduced himself and stated that in his class, nobody will talk about, discuss or mention President Donald Trump in any way. He said the penalty for doing so would be $5 placed in a jar in the classroom. I found that a bit strange for an international relations class, considering that Mr. Trump was the sitting president of the United States. Anyway, throughout the semester, a total of only $5 was placed in the jar, and that was by the teacher. He accidentally went on a rant about President Trump, and consequently placed $5 in the jar. I use the term accidentally very loosely, as I believe his rant was staged. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not a big Trump fan. However, this is a university class on international relations. The course content included the rise of China under Xi Jinping, Russia under Vladimir Putin, and even the Weimar Republic and the rise of Adolf Hitler. Yet, President Donald Trump was off-limits? What the hell is going on in universities today? Don't get me wrong, the students weren't stupid. I overheard a couple of them talking outside the classroom about the Donald Trump ban. As one eloquently put it, It's funny, we're allowed to talk about murderous dictators, but we can't talk about the sitting president of the United States? Essentially, a celebrity businessman? What the f*** is wrong with this university? Well, yes, that does seem a little bit odd, but maybe they're trying to avoid some sort of confrontation. Now, uh, if you're teaching a year 12 or year 10, 11, 12, or if you're a parent, um, your child or your student's probably going into an undergraduate course. And later on, they may well do another course, a postgraduate course. So so I thought we'd uh, have the next interview with someone who's done both and can talk about the difference. And this is Sarah Taylor. Sarah uh, is unwilling to say what university that she was at, um, and her voice has been changed a little bit to hide her identity, although Sarah doesn't say anything negative, really, about universities at all. Sarah Taylor, you've done both um, undergraduate, postgraduate degrees, or you're doing the postgraduate now. What, what do you think is the main difference between the two as an experience for you? Um, I think that um, with my postgraduate degree, I think 
people and the the cohort really brings in some different experiences and really some life experience, um, which really enables, I think, us as a cohort, I've found to really be a lot more cohesive as well as I find my postgraduate course people are really wanting to be there and wanting to follow that career. So, so far it's been a lot more enjoyable. And with your undergraduate degree, did you find that people were there, students were there because maybe they had to or their parents asked them to or there wasn't that drive that you see now in the postgraduate? I think in some instances, yes, uh, they were. But I also think uh, when you're younger, you potentially don't know what career path you would like to go into or what um, the the workforce is like. And really in a lot of the undergraduate courses, I found that um, the first year or two, they're very general um, in terms of that you might want to go into um, kind of a, a specific area in property or something, but you're taking very, very general um almost kind of basic subjects to show that you can do that. Um, So it's really hard to see where that's going to lead to and that transition to a kind of a higher level thought, which can be a little bit uh, difficult to be able to keep up the momentum and the enthusiasm. So with the undergraduate degrees, I would say that it really is up to the student to really commit and get the most out of their qualification. How long did it take you after the undergraduate to to really find out what you wanted to do? So I had uh, five years after my undergraduate before I worked out that there was potentially um, other other career paths. I think that was also a challenging time for both undergraduate and postgraduate students. Um, This was during COVID and I, I feel that through through the, the main stages of the pandemic, although it's, COVID is still continuing on and we'll have it for a while, um, it's, I think it really made people think about what they valued in their career and wanted. One of the lecturers that I've interviewed for this episode talked about uh, the rise in cheating and plagiarism um, from university students. And have you found that? No, I'm not saying did you do it, but if you um, is that is that a topic of discussion amongst your you know your friends? It definitely is a topic of discussion, and through through the uh, the online learning stages, which went along with with the COVID pandemic and lockdowns, and having to take exams online, and um, of course there was different programs for that, as well as. Um, the rise in artificial intelligence um, and the AI websites, which can help people create um, essay question answers. There's definitely a, I I would see a lot more chat about it um, and I think a lot more students are using it. Uh, Yes, whether they're getting caught or not, um, I think it's going to be very important for the universities just to be able to, make sure that the academic integrity of work being submitted is still of a high standard. Yeah. And do you find that there's many um, of your friends from schools, say, who went on to university and couldn't find a job in the chosen field that they'd studied for? 
Yes, I think there definitely was. But I also think that um, students coming out of university potentially uh, have, an, have an expectation that, say, you've done a management degree that you can then um, manage a group of people straight away and depending on your prior experience, you may be able to. Um, but I think younger generations also need to understand that working and um, kind of gaining credibility to your your abilities in the workplaces and your skill um, is also a really important important part of your career. Um, and there is a lot a lot of skills which can be gained from working from the ground up as well, and that definitely shouldn't be um, diminished. And I think a lot of people haven't taken jobs because they're scared of um, kind of going back to basics and really working their way up. Yeah. So are you indicating that what they've done, what they've learnt during their course? doesn't equip them for the um, the the you know feet on the ground work are you implying that I would say I'm not fully implying that I think university skills which they teach is only one aspect of employment and a career um, and really the life skills and the real learning I would say um, for me and my experience occurred when I had graduated. Okay, so Sarah, if you're going to be telling a year 12 person who's going to be sitting their exams in eight months or something, um, you know, giving them some advice about going to university and choosing the university, what would that advice be? I would say to a year 12 student who is uh, going to be applying for university soon to firstly don't be afraid to not accept an offer straight away and to take a gap year. It's okay to not know what you want to do. Um, and even though it feels like you need to keep rolling, it's okay to take a break. Um, otherwise, if you are looking to go straight into uni, um, I would say choose choose a degree or choose subjects which you're interested in, not necessarily that you're good at or your friends are doing or your parents think you should do. But if you're really interested in them, you'll apply them, you'll um, apply yourself to that course and you'll also get a lot more out of it and a lot more enjoyment. Otherwise, I would say being back on, being on campus for the first time, it's very different to school and don't be afraid to be different and to say hello to people and just start start making a conversation because you'd be surprised at the different relationships and friendships you can get out of even just being at the coffee shop and saying hello. Yeah, okay. And and look, finally, do you think that it's essential these days to have a university degree um, in order to go into the workforce? No, I definitely don't think it's essential to have a university degree. I think there are it's there's so many different roles out there which don't require a degree. Um, and also life skills and just general skills which you can get without university. But it would it depends on what what career you're looking to go into. Um, and there's always pathways around having a degree, not having a degree. So um, I would not say it's a barrier to not have a degree at all. Sarah Taylor, thank you very much for talking to us. Time for a brain break now, and here's another band from the Illawarra Cherry Marmalade. A really great response from them for the uh, song played back in season two. Um, 
And here's their track, Sweet Sienna. Cherry Marmalade with Hey Sweet Sienna. Find them on Spotify or wherever you get your music. Now it's time for another listen to, let's say, Bob from The Daily Insight. Another part of my job was helping PhD candidates with their statistics and IT issues. One lady I was helping had been studying and researching about the problems that Indigenous people face. She had been doing this for almost 10 years. She was also working casually in the Indigenous Studies Department and was expecting to become an academic or a lecturer after graduating. She was close to gaining her doctorate, which involved the research of Aboriginal health issues, specifically issues faced by Aboriginal men. She went out to 
many remote communities and interviewed many Aboriginal people, it was clear that she had a real passion for helping Indigenous Australians. The day of her graduation came and she was awarded her PhD, but the university had recently made a rule that only people who identify as being of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander descent can be employed in that department. I found that a bit strange. I actually bumped into her about six months later at a Buddhist temple of all places. I asked her how she was going, and she said she was on the dole, that is, she was receiving unemployment benefits from the government. Despite her being an expert in her field, the university refused to employ her because she was not Aboriginal. I think the university really shot themselves in the foot here. All those students studying Indigenous studies, essentially the people providing income to the department, most of them are not Aboriginal. Of course, only 3.8% of the Australian population identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, so of course the vast majority of students are not Aboriginal. So when these students graduate from Indigenous studies, what are they going to do? The university won't hire them because they're not Aboriginal. So what are they going to do? Go on the dole? Work for Coles? Eventually word will get out that only Indigenous people are employable in these Indigenous Studies departments, and then students will naturally seek out a different course of study. This important stream of income to the Indigenous Studies department will dry up. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that you might love Indigenous culture and you might want to go in and learn all about it, get a degree in it, but don't expect to get a job at the university in it when you're finished. Now, it's time to hear from the other side of the fence, from the lecturer, from the person who has spent their whole life in the university system, in the tertiary system, as a lecturer, as a coordinator of um, subjects. Um, I spoke to Jeff Barnes. Not his real name, and gee, he doesn't really sound anything like this, because we've altered his voice. But his whole career has been in education in the tertiary sector. Um, Jeff, can you just um, tell us a little bit about your education and uh, lecturing history? Yeah, sure, Phil. I've been involved in um, tertiary academic material since before the days of VTAB and before the days of private universities being organised. And I've worked in a number of different facilities through to right through undergraduate and up to postgraduate, been working in postgraduate probably for the last 10 years. So you've seen dramatic changes in tertiary education. Or what are the main changes that you've seen over the last 20 years? I think the really serious one is that um, education has become a commodity. And the, the education part of what goes on seems to be secondary to the business. And it's very much about money. That, that's the major change. And that would uh, be true not only in, in private education sectors, but in the university sector as well? Very much so, because the, the, if you like, the official universities as opposed to the private ones, they, they rely on overseas fee-paying students so much that without that income, they would not be able to function in the way they do today. And has this all meant a decline in standards of education? Absolutely. Uh, I see that um, in my own teaching. I get frustrated by 
the poor quality of the students who are enrolled, and it really doesn't matter what level you're talking about. You're talking about undergraduates, you get people who are not really qualified to enroll in the university, in, in my view. Uh, and then as you go further up the line, right through to the MBA level, there are MBAs that are provided through the private universities and through the public universities that rely so much on these overseas fee-paying students that they will accept people who often are not proficient enough in English. Uh, they have done, allegedly, they've done a degree which qualifies them to do it, but you wonder what and how they've done because they have no ability to do anything academic at all. So, yeah, the standards have really gone down. And have you seen, for example, as the course content, the standard of that dropped to cater for other students who perhaps aren't, aren't up to um, the, the academic rigour? Have you seen a drop in the, in the entire content standards? Yeah. Yeah, this is, <laughs> this is an insidious sort of growth area. So I have been teaching a particular subject at um, postgraduate MBA level, and it's in the courses I've been teaching, it's been an elective, but it's been an elective that almost everybody does. And I've found that the course material I'm teaching at, um, at that MBA level is the same as the material I was teaching at undergraduate level, the, 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 you know, the actual standard, um, and in some cases less in terms of theory and, and applying theory. And in fact, in the days when we were going for the, the VTAB accreditation of courses many, many years ago, um, I was teaching the same quality then as I am now at MBA. So yes, the, the standard has dropped. It's, it's, it's very sad because what it's doing is creating a, 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 a dumb society, isn't it? It's, it's not an enriched society at all. It's very hard, yeah, it's very hard to have conversations with people who claim to have a certain standard of education and you actually can't discuss the types of things they've studied in a in an intellectual way. It's just gone. I mean, there's a few, there's a few but not many. It's, it's not there. Now, I don't know whether you've had this experience, but I certainly have um, in a tertiary institution where the student wellness department... Um, student well-being uh, were able to override the lecturers and say no this student uh, can't do this assignment in time or this student can't do this assignment at all um, which meant that students often got away with doing virtually nothing have you experienced that uh, don't get me started on this one we could be here all day it's just I, I call this a pernicious blight on the system because the the so-called wellness people are not about education at all. They're about babysitting, mothering, caring about people who have problems. And I don't deride the problems that these people have. But if you enroll in higher education, at any level, higher education, then you've done so theoretically with the knowledge that you are going to be tested as a human being to learn and understand, analyze, and then project new ideas through that study. If you're incapable of doing that, you're not suitable for a university environment. And the wellness crews who then come back to you say, oh, this poor person has got X, Y, and Z wrong, and you've got to make allowances for it. They just dumb it all down even further. 
and people are getting degrees that they do not earn or deserve. I spoke to a, a university student uh, earlier on uh, that said that the university was simply a way of telling an employer that they could get things in on time and work to a deadline. Now, <laughs> what you're saying is that that, that, that really no longer applies. No, no, extensions, oh my goodness. Um, you know, I, I worked with someone a long time ago and we thought about writing a book of student excuses. You know, the, the dog, we were going to call it The Dog Ate My Homework. But of course, there are so many more really sophisticated excuses than that one. And they just get they just get extensions. Oh, look, you better give them an extension. We we want to keep our pass rate up for the subject. Ah, so so is there pressure on lecturers to pass students so that they're not disgruntled and they don't go back to whatever country they might have come from or back to their family and say, oh no no that's a terrible course. Is there pressure to pass? Yeah, look, it's a subtle pressure because you will get two messages at the same time. One message is you've got to keep the standards up. You've got to teach these people. They have to know what they're doing. They have to um, have to reach all of the milestones in the course. They have to do this, that, and the other. And the other one is we've got a pass rate of X percent for this subject. We don't want it to go lower. So what are you doing to make sure it doesn't go lower? Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, no wonder so much, so many academic staff are um, um, unhappy. Um, now, do you think that there is the jobs out there for students? Uh, in your experience, a student comes out with with degree. Maybe it's in marketing. Maybe it's in sport. Maybe it's in um, engineering. But are are the jobs actually out there? I think mostly they are. And uh, again, for some of the overseas students, the there are plenty of jobs because they go back to their country. I mean, a case in point there is India, where we're getting increasing numbers of Indian students in Australia. And a lot of them go back to India and they get jobs. They get good jobs. And if they've done a reasonable degree, they're probably making a very positive contribution to their country's economy. In Australia, I think the jobs are there. But the problem that I have is that both at undergraduate um, and postgraduate level, when the students graduate from those courses, they have expectations which are unrealistic about the job. Now, you say to the students, well, how much do you think you're going to earn when you leave here? And I've, I've, I can't tell you how many undergraduates who are early 20s have said, oh, I'm expecting $100,000 when I walk out of here. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's, it's just crazy. So the jobs are there, but... There are jobs at 50 grand or 60 grand. I want something big. Which are perfectly good career step jobs. They say, oh, no, no, I've got a degree. I don't need that. I want something else. And the ones ones with the MBA, they're looking at even more. Yeah. Yeah. Do do, do you think that this idea of early entry from universities, and it probably happens in the private sector, private colleges and and universities as well, where the student gets a gets accepted before the HSC or before their Year 12 exam, and then they don't have to actually pass the Year 12 exam because they know they're going into university. Do you think that's a good idea? No. Well, that's fairly straight. <laughs> Be simple. Yeah. Not, not at all. Yeah. No. Yeah. Terrible. Idea. Yeah. Uh, this, <laughs> it seems to be completely out of favour, but it's the university's way of guaranteeing an income for the next 12 months, isn't it? Well, go back to question one. What's it all yeah. about? More money. Yeah. 
Yes, yeah. It's a bit like medicine. So education has become, um, you know, an economy and medicine has become an, econ- an economy mm. and it doesn't yeah. necessarily make for the best. Um, I agree completely, yes. So what do you really think a university degree or a tertiary degree is necessary these days to have a career that you want? It's clear. This is the never-ending question. Um, I think in in the 2020s as we are, I think it's harder to get a career unless you are truly an entrepreneur and you are truly able to start kickstart your own type of business and do things, um, or you are someone who has a, a level of creativity that probably exceeds any tuition you would get in a in, in any sort of school. Um, for most people, I think if you don't have the degree, you don't get the tick on the CV. Um, companies like Seek will automatically reject your, your application for a job because you don't have one. So I would say, yes, a degree is necessary, but um, for my grandchildren now, I would say you have to have a degree. I can't see any way around it. But there are still exceptional people who don't have a degree um, who find jobs and they find careers and they make money and they do all sorts of things. Mm. It's it's interesting you say that because um, we've had some education students, some students who have gone out to become teachers, and they were uh, creative, entrepreneurial types, as you as you said. But they don't last because uh, the departments of education don't want creative types. They want people who are going to toe the line, and just be cogs in a in a machine. So perhaps the the concept of the creative um, entrepreneur, entrepreneurial worker is is going out the door. I don't think universities teach proper creativity and entrepreneurship at all, even when they have subjects that have those names in them. And when you teach them creatively and entrepreneurially, as I would have done over my career, you can often get into trouble for breaching the rules of the, the way the course is meant to be presented. The general question there, has the quality of academic staff gone down? Yes, it has in terms of actually being able to impart knowledge and encourage learning among students. Because if you've got someone who is automatically able to be employed as a lecturer slash facilitator in in an undergraduate course because they've got a PhD, or even in fact in a postgraduate course, they don't necessarily have the skills to impart any knowledge at all. And quite a few of them, um, they couldn't teach, they couldn't teach a, a, a dog to sit up, basically. So, so they're researchers, not teachers. They're researchers, yeah. And that's the problem. And Jeff, talking about quality, the topic of plagiarism and cheating has been um, brought up several times when I've been talking to, to students over the last two weeks and with lecturers uh, is it as big as they seem to be making out? Worryingly, it's increased in the last five years enormously. And it's there, it's endemic in the postgraduate level. And it's particularly difficult to manage with overseas students who seem to think 
ethically a different way to um, to the way I think, certainly, and the way the university's policies are. So we we range from people uh, using essay sites and cheating using those to students just using false references and basically making up a paper to um, uh, to students who now use artificial intelligence through chat GTP or they're going to sites that will sell them something. And I just find this is really, really difficult. It's You can often spot that it's not the student's work because if you've done this a long time, you understand about people's voice, their, their individual voice, and you can say that's not in the student's voice. But it's really hard to pick. Really hard. You know, you, you, you have to send it off to a, an academic integrity department and they've got all sorts of tools and they do their best and sometimes even they come back and say, look, you know, we agree with you, but it's really hard to actually pin the cheating on a particular system. It's Australia-wide, it's now worldwide. If you talk to people in America, talk to people in the UK, uh, which I've done um, quite recently, so I've been talking to people in New Zealand only in the last couple of months. Yeah, absolutely. It is endemic mm. everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So, Jeff, um, if you were advising a Year 12 student about university careers or tertiary education careers what would you advise them to do i think the first thing i'd be saying is take a year off because the and and in that year maybe i'm a bit old and i feel this sort of way of, of thinking but spend a year doing something that's useful somewhere in the world either in your own country somewhere away from home preferably or in another country, do some volunteer work, do some travel, find out what the world's about. Because a lot of Year 12s have got no idea what's outside their, their front door, really. So I'd say do that, and then really think about what you're good at. What are your own skills? You get someone to help you with that. Get a, you know, a mentor of some sort to assist you and say, look, I don't know where I want to go, but these are my skills. Where, where would my skills best be directed? Like a psychometric test sort of thing, like where you, you can analyse yourself as to what your aptitude is? Yeah, I mean, they, those tests are useful because they give you a bit of a benchmark, but it's it's deeper than that, you know? It's much deeper and wider. What do you want to do? So, you know, in my career, I've since I was at school, I wanted to be a writer, and I've been a writer all my life. And that's, you know, so I've managed to do that, but along the way I've done marketing writing and academic writing and you name it i've done it so i've been i've had a very clear focus on what i wanted to do but i, I meet people who don't have that focus they're, they're not sure what they want to do and that was jeff barnes that's jeff is not his real name uh, he wasn't prepared to use his real name because of many of the things that he said and academics are restricted as to what they can say uh, about the university system but he has not only lectured at several of uh, New South Wales's leading uh, universities but he's written the programs for them um, and he continues to do so and that's why his voice was changed and his name was changed. Now, to round off this episode and to talk about some of the things that Jeff was just saying, um, I'm going to talk to Ishbel 
Dunsmore. She's the Education Officer uh, in the SRC, the Student Representative Council, for the University of Sydney. And I began by asking her, as the Education Officer, why she thought the quality of education had declined. Uh, I think it's a combination of factors. I think the sort of main overarching reason I see um, is that students and staff have kind of lost a lot of the control over their learning and working conditions at the uni. Um, I think uh, the overturning of compulsory student unionism in 2005 is a sort of uh, great and tragic example of this. So, so when, when, when I was at university, being in the student union was a part of your fees. So you, you, you didn't actually have a, have an option. So what is the percentage of students now who belong to the student union? Uh, you know, we, we can't even really document it. Um, we, um, it's because everyone has to pay their staff fees now, which is the student staff and amenities fee. So there's a sort of proportion of that that goes towards funding the SRC. But the problem with that is that um, students aren't really told about the necessity of being in, in the student unit um, or knowing about um, what it sort of does and the campaigns that it's run, which I think is, you know, deeply problematic. And, of course, that, that means that other students who may want to get involved don't know it exists, so they don't bother but, and, and they become un, unengaged in university life. Yeah, definitely, and that's a real problem. Yeah. And what are the staff saying to you about the quality of education at university? Uh, well, um, if it tells you anything, um, staff are about to go um, into their seventh day of strikes this Thursday. <laughs> um, right. Yeah, so that's yeah. lecturing staff as well? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, all staff who are in the National Tertiary Education Union um, or Casuals Network, which are two active unions on campus. And what are they actually pushing for as part of, the, part of quality education? Is it salary-based? They're fighting for a fair pay rise above, above inflation. Um, they're fighting for casuals' rights. They're fighting for um, a real commitment to Indigenous employment. Yeah, things that affect students, um, like ballooning class sizes, um, reduced quality of teaching and poor marking feedback, aren't just sort of um, like symptoms of incompetence um, of staff, but I think they're more symptoms of um, poor staff working conditions um, because they're sort of being worked to the bone for very, very little. Um, and I think that's a trend with university. Um, like um, management in the past sort of 20 years, as you said, um, uh, like, yeah, student, staff not being valued, students not being valued for what they can also give back. Yeah, it's very it's very heavy on bureaucracy on the top end and very, very light on the lower end and the teaching end and the education side. Um, so, so Chinese students are now returning to Australia and it seems... Um, and that's good, but the universities are, are, are just repeating their mistakes of relying on this market. Now we saw what happened during COVID. If they rely on that market, of course, it's it, it's going to you know be a disaster. Do you think that universities in general are well managed? <laughs> no, <laughs> is the short answer. I think, um, but yeah, I would agree that um, you know the university treats international students like cash cows. They make millions of dollars off their backs. Um, but in return, you know, they're given a pretty poor quality of education, as I've sort of pointed out, like b between the, you know, staff cuts, um, forced redundancies and um, uh, the course cuts that have been happening over COVID. 
Yeah, there's a, there's a lot um, not to think about if you're an international student. Now, and what about what you're learning? Do you think what you're learning is going to equip you to to do the sort of work or the career you want to follow? Yeah, I think I would say yes and no. Um, I really think it's dependent on how you approach uni. I think you know the obvious sort of um, reason why um, students go to uni or people go to uni um, is to get a job out of it, and certainly, like I would. You know, I came into uni thinking that, you know, I'm an engineering and arts student. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to get a job with my arts degree, you know. Um, that's the sort of approach I went But you may as an engineer. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's the thing. But, yeah, that's why I sort of went in. But I, I sort of almost feel like this is the wrong approach. I think um, this sort of thinking is really reinforced by the, the Liberals Job Ready Graduates Package in 2020 because it kind of incentivized students to take you know, an, exa- uh, an engineering degree over an arts degree um, based on perceived worth um, that was sort of set by the government. And, yeah, I think, you know, they're successful in shooing students into these jobs that benefit the economy. But I sort of want to reframe it to say that there's a sort of equal, if not much greater joy and use in approaching uni with the perspective of um, learning for life and for yourself. Um, and participating in uni as a social and public good. Yeah, so it's a matter of having a, a, a larger view of what education is, not just a, a training for the job view. Now, um, you mentioned before that, that overseas students were really cash cows for the universities, but uh, what about um, the early entry to Year 12s, where Year 12s are given early entry and really they just grab it and they say yes to it. They've never even been to the university or, or read about it, really. They just take it. Um, do you think that that's another just money-making uh, scheme from the universities? Yeah, yeah. I think it's, you know, it's pretty easy to argue that um, Year 12s are being sort of sold a pop. It's a strategic decision on behalf of the, the university or university management to get as many um, young students signed up so they can sort of ensure their bottom line um, for the next year. You know, in 2021, they made... A billion dollars of surplus. So, you know, definitely a big money-making scheme. <laughs> so, in your opinion, do you think a university degree is, is worth the effort considering the, the, the cost and the length of the courses? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I really do. As, as much as I sort of talk about the doom and gloom, I think there's a, a real great benefit to university when it's run by and for students and staff um, because, you know, they're the ones... You know what they want. They're the ones who make the university run. And, you know, obviously there's a great financial cost, um, which can be, you know, a great burden for students thinking about attending uni. Um, So, you know, yeah, it's worth weighing up the pros and cons. And obviously there's a big class divide at uni with, you know, sort of 75% of students having gone to private or selective schools, which can be a little alienating as a public schooler. Um, But, yeah, yeah, I don't think students should be put off by the length of their degree um, you know, you should be there um, learning for life. Okay. So if you were giving advice to a Year 12 student now, considering going into university, what would you tell them? Two pieces of advice. Um, but the first would be uh, not to be scared of, you know, messing around with your degree to find out what you like. Um, you know, I got two years into philosophy. Um, you know, I'm a fourth year now. Um, two years into philosophy before deciding it wasn't for me and picking up political economy instead. Um, which you know, a lot of a lot of people do actually, because political economy is one of those units that um, 
people have no idea what it is, but it's got a really rich history. I think it's worth going along to your friends' lectures and, you know, talking to staff, um, getting involved in the faculty societies, if that's your sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, university is as much as it is about learning in a formal setting as it is about learning outside the classroom. What about joining the union? So so you, you'd certainly suggest that students do that, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, so actually, my, my next point is to join your student union. <laughs> um, funny you say that. Um, but yeah, you know, I've gained a, a really insurmountable amount of knowledge and skills just from being involved in um, the activist collectives and groups um, that the student union funds and runs um, with what sort of little funding that it has from the university. It's interesting, Ishbel, because I, I've spoken to a few students and one student uh, from Macquarie University said that, um, oh no, student life, the uh, it was all too radical. There were extremist groups, there were socialist groups doing this and then they were, they were arguing about this. And I said, well, are you a member of the union? And, and that person said, no. <laughs> and I said, well, if you were, you could get in there and form your own clubs or, you know, steer things in the way that you think it should be should be run if you don't think it's run properly. But as you mentioned in question one, I think, that, that um, unless they know there's a student union, they're not going to get involved. Yeah. Joining the student union is, is one way that you can feel confident to combat that. Yes. Yeah. And to have your say, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, you can actually communicate and, and learn things. And, and yeah, it's a good idea. So the student union can be followed on Instagram, Facebook. University of Sydney um, Student Representatives Council um, and on Instagram, the Education Action Group, which is the education. Oh, sorry, the, the portfolio um, group that I run is at usid.education.action. Yes. And that was Ishbel. Dunsmore, the Education Officer in the Student Representative Council at the University of Sydney. Some pretty clear things came out of that. First one, students, you've got to be involved. You can't complain about things if you don't become involved. Joining the union doesn't mean that you've just got to be a socialist or you've got to uh, be this or that. You can do anything you like and you can have your own political views um, raised. So join the student union. The second thing was that yes, Ishbel said there's been a decline in the quality of education which is what the the action is about um, over the next week and probably month um, and the workload on academics. I remember um, about six years ago that I had 94 assignments of 2,000 words each that I had to mark within two days and have it on the desk of the um, the manager by uh, 9 a.m. on the third day. Now, um, 94 2,000 word essays in two days is absolutely crazy. And perhaps one of the biggest issues facing both academics and students on university campuses in Australia has been freedom of speech. And... Um, the Institute of Public Affairs uh, did some research with students and this is what they found. Australia's university administrators are constantly denying that there's a problem with free speech on their campuses, but they've never actually asked students. So that's what we did. The IPA commissioned a survey of 500 Australian students asking what they thought about the state of free speech at their universities. And the results are damning. 
41% of students feel that they are sometimes unable to express their opinion at university. And 31% said that they have been made to feel uncomfortable by a university teacher for expressing their opinion. And 59% said that they are sometimes prevented from voicing their opinions by other students. The good news is students may not have free speech on campus right now, but they want it. 82% of students believe that at university, they should be exposed to different views, even if those views are challenging or offensive. And only 2% of students disagreed. So if such a large majority of students want free speech, why are university administrators letting a tiny percentage of anti-free speech activists dictate the culture on their campuses? Universities are supposed to be bastions of free intellectual inquiry and open debate but they are failing. And as a result, students are turning to social media. 47% of students said that they feel more comfortable expressing their views on social media than at university. And 58% said they are more exposed to new ideas on social media than at university. 45% believe that social media plays a bigger role in shaping their opinion than what they learn at university. So what's the state of free speech at Australian universities? Well, if this isn't a free speech crisis, what is? Well, maybe there is a free speech problem at Australian universities, and maybe that's why Donald Trump can't be discussed in a lecture on international politics. Um, anyway, um, today is International Women's Day because this is coming out on the 8th of March in Australia anyway. It'll be tomorrow, I think, in the USA. Um, and it's fantastic that women are now in occupations that they were never in before and it's wonderful to see that that is happening. Um, I heard on the radio this morning about women uh, in astronomy and how that's a real go-ahead area and that is just wonderful. Um, but I did some research about education and education is not one of the areas that needs affirmative action to get more women into it. I spoke to Associate Professor John DeNoble from Macquarie School of Education in the Faculty of Arts about the, the stats. The ratio in the actual teaching workforce hasn't changed too much. In primary, it's about 85% female, 15% male, for example. Right Now, when I look at my classes that I'm teaching and I teach in the primary and the secondary programs, I'm seeing a very similar split. I'm seeing that maybe for every 100 students that are in my lecture, there might be about 15 uh, male students there. I then looked at a bureaucracy, the New South Wales Department of Education, and found that out of the organisational structure, 66.2% of all of those officers were women. So in schools, in education, in educational bureaucracy, women are doing very well. And good on them. So maybe the women at the top of the bureaucracies can do some affirmative action campaigns to try and get more men into teaching, because we certainly need them. Now, this has been a long episode. Our next episode, episode 26, I'm hoping to be interviewing some of the candidates for the New South Wales election to see what their position on education will be. Um, having a bit of trouble getting them, but I'm still hopeful that I'll be able to interview them. Um, also letting you know that our Facebook presence will be um, declining as we are taking up the Substack presence. 
all of our uh, social media will be via Substack. Um, A, I don't like all the advertising on Facebook. B, I don't like the fact that they sell your and my data for uh, lots of money. And I don't like the fact that we'll have to pay $20 a month to be validated. Thanks for listening. If you want to donate or become a member of Marking the Roll, just go to markingtheroll.com.au or go to Substack and search for Marking the Roll and you'll find us there. Thanks for listening. My name's Phil Dye. See you again soon. <laughs>